Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The New Statesman. Around the world, politicians turn to nationalism for power. We were nationalist, we were nationalist are nationalist, nationalist, and will remain nationalist. A globalist is a person that wants the globe to do well, frankly, not caring about our country so much. And you know what? We can't have that. You know, they have a word. It sort of became old-fashioned. It's called a nationalist. And I say, really, we're not supposed to use that word. You know what I am? I'm a nationalist, okay? I'm a nationalist. If I consider Russia my homeland, this means that I love in Russian, contemplate and think, sing in Russian and say that I believe in the spiritual forces of the Russian people. Their vision of the nation is an exclusive one. It's based on being the right race or religion or ethnicity. The nation is closed to those who don't fit the description or even to those who object to the description. Our answer is clear. We would like to preserve Europe the Europeans. This also requires an effort from other countries. This is not only something we would like, but that also we want, because it depends on us to preserve Hungary for Hungarians. The Chinese people have been indomitable and persistent. We have the spirit of fighting the bloody battle against our enemies to the bitter end. In the face of this nationalistic and historical trend, all efforts and tactics to divide the nation are doomed to fail. It's proven politically potent and powerful. But is there another way? In this series, we'll look at nationalisms around the world and ask whether it's possible to counter them with a different kind of nationalism. Could the nation be inclusive? Could it be based on civic participation and liberal values? What would that look like? What would it mean? In Orban's rhetorics for many years, Hungarians with big H 
are only the ones who are voting for him. And no one until today in the political parties, in the political spectrum, there was no any other political leader who could figure out such a unifying story. That's Zsuzsana Zeleny, a Hungarian politician and foreign policy specialist. I'm also joined by Gergely Rumsics, a historian. The Hungarian right sort of went back to its century-old tradition of looking at civic nationalism with mistrust. So just as you had this attempt to reconstruct the civic nationalism, it went hand in hand with the, I would argue, radicalization of Hungarian conservative nationalist discourse. In this episode, we'll look at nationalism in Hungary and why Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban has proven so effective at using it. Can the opposition find another way? I'm speaking now with Zsuzsana Zeleny. She is now at CEU's Democracy Institute, but she is also a former member of Hungarian Parliament and the author of a new book, Tainted Democracy, Viktor Orban and the Subversion of Hungary. Zsuzsana, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you very much for inviting me. So I wanted to start out by asking you, you write in the book that you were a member of Fidesz in the late 80s and early 1990s. You left in 1994, appreciating that they were making this right-wing turn that you didn't want to be a part of, and said that this sort of emotionally impacted you for a couple of years. Could you speak a bit about how you decided to leave and why it was so difficult for you? In order to speak about why I left, I have to say why I did join. And of course, this was a very important event in my life, basically decisive until now. I was in my university years in the late 90s or late 80s when, when a bunch of university students and young intellectuals established the party Fides. And this was a group of people who, come, who came from a certain specific specialized colleges. So actually Fides represented a new generation of young people in the late 80s who were much more outspoken in terms of politics, who were the children of the Kadar regime, which was much softer and well-being in Hungary was rather good. There was an opening towards the West. So we grew up in a time when we thought we couldn't speak up about the dictatorship and Soviet dominance. And Fidesz was a fascinating party to to join. It grew very quickly. Like me, other people joined within a couple of weeks. It was really a generational party and also very liberal, very pro-Western, very open-minded, very alternative. In many ways, it was like an early green. This is how, how Fidesz looked like in the early years. And this is how we got into the parliament at the first elections in 1990. I was a member of parliament of Fidesz party. And we really had a fascinating period of time. And we basically become adults at the regime change. So my generation, Fidesz generation, were really the, the most fortunate generation in Hungary for hundreds of years. And it was a very smart party. But then we elected Orban. So Viktor Orban had a role in this party since the beginning. However, it, he was not the founder at all. It was a bunch of people who did it. But he was a faction leader. And then he, we elected him as a party chairman in 1993. So until then, Fidesz was led by a, a board. There was not one single leader. And that was a very a quick and strike change within the party. Orban 
captured the party very quickly. The internal rules were written uh, for the new situation that there is a party president. Uh, he got a lot of competencies. He became the one who really dominated financial and human resources. And he began to change in a very different way than beforehand. So he knew very well how to grab power already in 1993. And, and there were a lot of conflicts started from his leadership styles from that moment. So that was one reason why I finally left the party, among many others, actually. So Orban took the party to a big crisis by 1994 because of his leadership style because of he started to use financial resources in a way which we just didn't find acceptable. So basically, he abused the party finances and also made certain circles enriching from that money. And finally, Orban started to pull the party to the right. Now, it's very important to understand that when Fidesz was established ideologically, it was very committed to the center. It said, or we saw that ourselves, that we are the middle ground of Hungarian society. The Hungarian political elite for 100 years had deep divisions of, I would say, more traditionalist, nationalist political forces and more modernist. However, they were all, all was pushed down because the pre-war period was basically an autocratic regime. But even the, among Democrats, there was this division among modernists and the traditionalists. And this was very strongly um, reviving at the regime change. And Fidesz really did not want to go into this cultural war. So that was our identity. But when Orban became the party president, he thought that this would not be a sustainable position for the party and Fidesz cannot grow big in the center. And because there was a vacuum on the right, the first Hungarian government, right-wing government, basically collapsed under the burden of the regime change, the big crises of the regime change in the early 1990s. He found a way to pull it to the right. And this kind of um, easy change of ideology and views, that was all on top of everything very much. So that was a three major reasons why mm. I left the party among, as I said, for many other people. So that was a big crisis of Fidesz in the, by the mid-90s. And I think it's important to know that often today when we speak about Hungarian politics, we speak about the trends now as though they go back to 2015 or maybe back to 2010, but you're identifying phenomena that were in motion already in the 1990s. And then in terms of the way that nationalism is used in Hungarian politics, you, in the book, point to this one moment in... 2002, after Orban and Fidesz's electoral defeat, you quote this speech that he made at Buda Castle where he says, we are not going away. The homeland is there even when it comes under the influence of foreign powers. If it is overrun by Tartars or the Turks, the homeland is there even when shaken by the storms of history. The homeland is there even if the responsibility for governing is not ours. And he says that we here in the square are not and can never be in the opposition because the homeland can never be in the opposition. So even in 2002, it sounds like to me, and correct me if I'm misreading, but even in 2002, he is associating himself and his followers with the nation. First of all, Viktor Orban, when he pulled the, uh, the party to the right, he was fortunate enough to get the prime minister at 1998. 
So he was prime minister 98 to 2002. And in this period, on the right of the center right of the political field, Urban's party could successfully build up this moderate nationalist pro-Hungarian profile. This was very important for Fidesz to introduce this because it needed to fight to be accepted on the right. And taking over and building up a nationalist narrative, however, a soft nationalist compared to the, the quote you made, it was very successful. And nationalism or being as a proud Hungarian became a trademark for Fidesz. This is how Viktor Orban could build a big party out of a smaller, once liberal party that he took over this nationalist rhetorics. And they very successfully interpreted it in, a modern, in the modern language with modern telecommunication technologies, which was always a strong side of Fidesz since the very beginning. So it was not a kind of old type of nationalist idea, but it was very fresh. It was very proud. It was a dreams of the dreamers. There was a lot of celebrations. It was very tangible that we are proud Hungarian around the 2000s. So when Orban lost the elections at 2002, it was a big, very disappointed camp, including his own elite. Actually, he, they expected to win again because they were very successful while they governed. But still, it was not enough. And this is when Orban made this quotation and he started to identify himself with the nation, even when he was in opposition. And this speech was something, a turning point in Hungarian politics, basically towards a more radicalized form, because with this quote that we are even Hungarians and, and the donation is there when even it's under repression. It was sampling of many people for the kind of communist rule. It was that the Socialist Party, which gained power in 2002, but it was also given a moral element of this nationalistic point of view. So with this expression, all one said that whoever is there, whoever is governing, whoever is occupying us, the people, we are there and we are right. We are justly representing ourselves. And this was also a radical and a populist move. So as from that point, actually until today, Viktor Orban is using very populist talk, which is very interestingly remained his style since 2010, since he's had a landslide victory and he has every power you can have in, in, in a country, basically. It's interesting that it is populism, but it's not a populism that's accessible to everyone. In other words, it's not everybody is invited into this vision of the Hungarian nation. Could you speak a bit more about that, about to whom is this call to nationalism? Because it's very effective, right? He's been in power since 2010, and this rhetoric has clearly worked for him politically for the past 20 years. Who is this call to nationalism for, and why do you think it's as effective as it is? When this 2002 speech was said, Fidesz lost the elections with the margin. The Hungarian political arena was ex very divided then. Half of the people voted for Fidesz and the right-wing coalition and half of the people, just 51% for the socialists and the liberal parties. So when he spoke about we are, we the people are ever there, 
he spoke to his own people, which was a half of, of the voters. And uh, there is a story which I put in this book, which is very telling. The Hungarians used their national from the 1848 revolutions. For the revolution, this is a symbol of the national tricolor. And we use it on 15th of March. This is, this is the anniversary of the revolution, of the bourgeois revolution in Hungary. It's always a very important momentum in, in Hungarian politics. And usually elections are following this, this day because every political party can use it in some way to, to tell their stories. And in 2010, when we were running for the election campaign, and then Orban wanted the people on the 15th of March to keep on the cockade, those who are Hungarians. But obviously, because it was Viktor Orban who said this, it was a very partisan comment. And it was very paralyzing to see, including me, I was out of politics on those years. Right. And you know, what the hell can we do now? We do believe that the cockade is our symbol, our national symbol. Our, it's an important thing for Hungarian historic memory. But we want to keep it on because of Viktor Orban is saying. Right. So right. it was a very divisive mood. And this is very typical for Orban back then and today that he can operationalize his rhetorics with with symbolic elements like this cockade or with, with any other practical political measures. This is one of the strengths and a tool for efficiency for Viktor Orban that he can translate what he's talking into very concrete things like wearing a cockade. It's almost only the half of the country what he, who he's speaking to. And he doesn't really need more because the election system makes it possible that he wins again and again with just part of the voters. In Orban's rhetorics for many years, Hungarians with big age are only the ones who are voting for him. Mm -hmm. And no one until today could really, in the political parties, in the political spectrum, there was no any other political leader who could figure out such a unifying story Actually, nationalism is easy in this part of Europe. In every Eastern European countries, uh, nationalism was never really elaborated since the war. This was an out of issue, out of question issue during communism. And in the 90s, it always broke up to the political arena. And well, in, in the case of Hungary, this was basically managed by Orban for political purposes. We will leave it there. I want to tell listeners that if you are even a little bit interested in Hungarian politics or in Viktor Orban or uh, what Hungary means in global politics today, I highly encourage you to read this book. It is called Tainted Democracy. It has insights into Hungarian politics today that I have not come across in any other, at least any other English language text. Dujana Seleni, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you very much for inviting me. Coming up after the break, I'll be speaking to Gergely Romsic about civic nationalism in Hungarian history, the precedents in today's politics, and the challenges for those who would rather see a nationalism other than the closed and ethnic kind. As a reminder, all four episodes of the series will be available on the World Review podcast feed and online at newstatesman.com slash podcasts. We're offering a special discount on new subscriptions to the New Statesman for listeners to these podcasts. You can get 12 weeks for £1 a week in the UK or $2 a week in the US by visiting newstatesman.com slash subscribe. 
From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including the historian Colin Kidd on Watergate's renewed relevance in a post-Trump era. Today's obsessions about a deep state took their rise in the 70s amid this climate of anxiety. Jeff Dyer's reflections on how to grow old in America. He was propped up in bed, proudly sporting a badge. Private medicine makes me sick. Maria Vilcek tells the story of how the hard men of Belarusian football took on Alexander Lukashenko. Hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I am joined now by Gergely Romshish. Gergely is a historian and also teaches at the Department of Social Sciences at ELTA, a university in Budapest. Gergely, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you for the invitation. This podcast is just is a discussion of whether we can or even should reimagine the sort of ethnic closed nationalisms that we see at play politically around the world today, including in Hungary, as something more civic, something more liberal, something more inclusive. And in preparation for this podcast, we went back and forth and you said that in Hungary, there are actually some historical precedents for this. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about some of them? Absolutely. And this all comes with a caveat that when I'm discussing 
ideas that were presented at some point in history doesn't necessarily mean that they were translated into practical politics intact. Right. And that's something that right. we'll be coming back to and we need to revisit when we discuss traditions of civic nationalism. But certainly in mm. Hungary, as in other East Central European countries that are inspired by both French and German nationalism of the 19th century, trying to catch up to European standards, trying to overcome the belatedness of their development, there is in the 19th century a strong current that modernization, building a liberal society, and building a nation have to go hand in hand. That is a necessity. It's not even a choice. In practice, what this would mean is, of course, that liberal nationalists of the mid 19th century, and they are the guys behind the 1848 revolutions, for instance, which is something that listeners might find familiar, believe strongly that you need a modern constitutional state, assure basic rights to people, even penal reform, certainly emancipate Jews and other religions. All of this is a classic liberal package that is familiar to us. This, however, comes hand in hand with an insistence that these emergent countries or historically existing countries that have to be modernized, one or the other, are also national in character. But how do you conceive of this nationalism? And the answer there is, it's a political nation. And whatever that means, it's certainly something that's open and that anyone can join. And here comes a mm. caveat. The problem becomes, and this is discovered very early, already during the revolutions of 1848, that in practice, it doesn't really give you a roadmap to how to build this inclusive nation. Do you want to assimilate the nationalities? This is pretty much what every dominant national group in this region, and I stand by this very strong claim, would do in right. the course of the 19th and early 20th centuries. When you're in a dominant position, you become assimilationist. When you're the oppressed one or the weak party, then you certainly demand ethnic national, whatever types of autonomies, and you I, I, imagine a consociational democracy. So in practice, I would argue that civic nationalism has repeatedly run aground on the ethnic mm. question. With yeah. that said, 1848, the revolution, and then in the wake of World War I, 1918, are instances of Hungarian history when you have such a strong civic nationalist movement, and I would add to it, 1989 in many ways as well. You said just a moment ago that what you had was the dominant party wanted to assimilate others into this nationalism. But in Hungary today, and correct me if I'm wrong, but what's strange is that the ethnic nationalism in Hungary is coming from the dominant group. It's coming from, and it's not just coming from the dominant group, but it's coming from a political party which can change the, it's not just, oh, you have to be Hungarian, you have to be Christian, you have to be white. You also have to have a certain political persuasion. So now it's not just this classic tension of, of that you were describing of earlier centuries. There's this other element, well, absolutely. Too, which is the political party. The battlefield has shifted, if you like. In the 19th century, the liberal civic nationalism that we've been describing identifies as its enemy, conservative authoritarianism. It's even anti-national. The Habsburgs are anti-national, and they're the enemy for many of these awakening nations of East Central Europe or the Romanovs, or the Hohenzollerns. So it's these imperial dynasties. Now, fast forward to the present, I would argue that much of the history of the 20th century viewed from an East Central European ethno-nationalist perspective, let me put it this way, can be simplified into a story of the rise of a cosmopolitan liberalism that has to be counteracted by whatever forces, the most potent of these being this sort of 
if not ethnic, then definitely not civic nationalism either. I would argue that there is a productive ambiguity. It's some sort of nationalism that is not always ethnic, but definitely strongly emphasizes, emphasizes the need for a limited, for a bounded political community of some homogeneity. And so the short answer to your very astute question is that this can be explained by a new enemy that is liberal cosmopolitanism, at least in the political imaginaries of these nationalist movements of the late 20th century in Hungary and also in some other parts of the region and the world for that matter. In conversations that we've had on this podcast so far, one thing that keeps coming up is people saying, we do need a civic nationalism to counter this ethnic nationalism, but we're not quite sure how to do that when the ethnic nationalism is so effective. What are your thoughts on that in Hungary specifically? I think Hungary is sort of a good extreme case in the sense that while I describe 1989 as having a civic nationalist dimension, and or maybe it can be even called a civic nationalist moment, a very liberal, inclusive, but national moment nevertheless, so the end of communism, by the time NATO accession and European accession come to dominate the political agenda, this sort of civic nationalism recedes into the background. And you have a dominant current, or at least something that's perceived by many people to be dominant, which is this liberal Atlanticist drive to become as much westernized as possible. And the uh, sort of the necessary contrahand to, to this is some sort of a nationalism, some sort of a communitarianism. What happens, I would argue, in this new millennium is that the ideational pull of this globalizing liberalism is very much weakened. This maybe even so we could call it an internal crisis of confidence of for this sort of westernizing trends and agents of this westernization, which goes hand in hand with the radicalization, the strengthening of the nationalist logic, which feeds off of the weakness of the liberal paradigm. So what has happened is that we have a bipolar, I would argue, largely bipolar spectrum where it's cosmopolitanism versus nationalism, which leaves very little room for a civic nationalism that does have sort of this universal element in it, right? right. It's human right. rights are important to it. The equality of different groups of people, minorities, etc. They're all important parts to it. But at the same time, it does want to imagine a political community that can act as a moral agent. And that is caught in the crossfire. But And you said that there are still some remnants of civic nationalism, if you look carefully in Hungarian politics today, or at least allusions to civic nationalism of the past. Could you speak a bit about that, about where it still shows up? Absolutely. I, and as you said, I, I wouldn't call any existing political or even large intellectual platform as fully identifying itself as representing some sort of a civic nationalist. It's, I would call it it's sort of a hidden current that colors political discourses and political platforms, there is, so I would argue, a growing awareness in what is today the opposition. So various centrist and leftist parties, from socialist to liberal to green new left formations, that the global promise of westernizing integration just doesn't do the trick anymore. And that you have to appeal to a more tangible community, which can still be a an open community to, with regard to the world and with regard to others, right? And this is, I would argue, is especially present in the political discourse that the one of the new parties' momentum movement has been advancing, which is a liberal party. It's member. It's a member in the European Parliament of the Renew Europe group, but it also has been 
very aware of the need for, to discuss issues of nationality uh, that the, I would argue the old left has failed to do. There is an important lesson, I think, that maybe has become too traumatic for many of the Hungarian parties on the left, which is Prime Minister Ferenc Gyurcsány's attempt to, to very consciously create a civic nationalism I, between 2004 and 2008, roughly speaking. This went hand in hand with reevaluating Hungarian history, facing responsibility in the Holocaust, collective responsibility, emancipating Roma right. memory, Roma culture into the fabric of society. It was really a classic civic nationalist platform I would argue that it failed for two reasons. One was the rapid disintegration of the Socialist Party because of various faulty policies, mainly economic and social. So more or less not having to do with this particular issue. But also the other aspect was that the Hungarian right sort of went back to its century-old tradition of looking at civic nationalism with mistrust and in fact trying to unmask it as a kind of cosmopolitanism in disguise. So just as you had this attempt to reconstruct the civic nationalism, it went hand in hand with the, I would argue, radicalization of Hungarian conservative nationalist discourse, which entailed the subversion or undermining of any such attempts by labeling it as actually just cosmopolitanism in new clothes. So this is the last question that I have for you. You can reject it as your historian and not a politician or political advisor. But when you look at this, do you think it is worth it for Hungarian politicians to try to grapple with and try to create a civic nationalism? Or is the reality that ethnic nationalism is going to win every time when we put these two up together? And you have to find a different way to reach to reach voters, to reach the people. I cannot answer that directly. I will try to answer that in a roundabout way. As, a, as precisely as a historian of modernity in East Central Europe, I, I can definitely argue that a political movement, and this is generally universally true, needs a base, and that base has to be somehow held together. And what we are, in my opinion, what we are seeing today in Hungary, but also in some other countries, and is that you encounter very strong nationalist communitarian platforms that seem to have lasting power. And if you want to stand against these, I think we can just do a quick survey of you know, what has been successful. And I believe there are two answers for that. One is really big nationalist platforms. I would, for instance, describe the main force of the Polish opposition as very close to what I would call a civic nationalism. It's still strongly national. It identifies as such, but its nationalism is distinctly different from the Polish government party, from, the, from that of peace. Now, in other countries, at times you do have liberal surges. It happens. So there seems to be a track record of a recurring strength or pull behind this idea of rejoining Europe, which in some ways supersedes the national question. At the same time, I would argue that, historically speaking, the nation has kept recurring, at least in this part of the world, as something that you just cannot avoid. It's a region that is characterized by an, by an awareness, even in simple people, of having been late to the party, of having been dominated by empires, often other nations, and everyone is claiming their seat at the table. And this is something that genuinely resonates with people. It's belated state formation belated nationalization of the state, which 
not to exempt, not to argue that historical responsibility doesn't need to be assumed. It has to be assumed, but it, it some ways even explains assimilation is nationalism. It's a reaction to being late of needing to, the sense that you need to strengthen your country. In, in such a setting, I would lean to answering your question in the affirmative that unless some aspect of nationalism can be integrated into a progressive political platform, it will suffer significantly because of what I just described as the deeply inscribed historical reflexes and identities, mentalities that are prominent in East Central Europe. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Next week, in episode three of Nationalism Reimagined, we'll look at India. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi is not only embracing a Hindu nationalism, not only attacking the nationalist credentials of Muslims in India, but saying that anyone who stands against him is an anti-national. How did India get here and what could come next? You've been listening to Nationalism Reimagined, a special World Review podcast series from the New Statesman. I have been Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C., and this podcast was produced by Adrian Bradley and Mae Robson. Thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.